You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the transit zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. Photography as a media invention emerged in the early decades of the 19th century, over 60 years before that cluster of other communications technologies in the late 19th and early 20th century including cinema, audio recording and replay, television and radio. We still have the first photographic images, as we still have the first cinematic sequences. War played a key role in boosting the evolution of photojournalism and documentary photography, as it did later with the strengthening of aviation during the First World War. The American Civil War and the Crimean War were clear examples of that. Newspapers gradually drew upon photography more and more as a visual staple. Wire photos and later colour printing on newsprint amplified its potency in news and journalism. There was a golden era for photojournalism and pictorial print media with weekly large format news magazines that were extremely popular. Then came the digital revolution and the internet. Journalism has been transformed. Its business model, previously so dependent on advertising, upturned. Inevitably, photojournalism has been part of that disruption. I'm looking right now at a photographic image of Tasmanian Liberal MP Bridget Archer crossing the floor in our federal parliament during a significant vote on climate change legislation. Community independent Zali Stegel has been snapped in the act of welcoming Archer with her arm outstretched. Greens MPs sit nearby. The photojournalist who captured that moment and many others in Australian politics, especially in Parliament House itself, was Mike Bowers, now photographer at large for The Guardian newspaper, in Australia an online news outlet only, and earlier in his career he was picture editor for the Sydney Morning Herald. Many know Mike too as the host of the regular segment Talking Pictures within ABC Television Sunday morning program Insiders, where Mike and a guest scan the week's offerings in that other strand of visual journalism that's also been transformed by digital political cartoons. Mike Bowers, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. And great to be able to catch up with you at last. On a very particular week in Australian politics, I think you'll agree, we're recording this on the Friday, the second week of the new parliament. So you have been flat chat taking pictures, and I've seen many of them coming through on the Guardian Live blog. Just describe what's been going on in your life as a photographer at large in the federal parliament over these last two weeks. Well, the the opening of any parliament is always a a really very busy time for for photographers who cover this. In many ways, it's a messy time because a lot of the protocols and the standing orders stretch back many hundreds of years in the Westminster system, things that, that don't make much sense in this day and age. So it's a lot of work, but it's very hard to pull a decent picture out until the parliament proper starts sitting. And with a change of government, of course, uh, they're always very anxious to get rolling and start to get runs on the board. So it's been a, a really busy time with legislation, first speeches, uh, of course, because no parliamentarian can make any substantive input into any debate until they've given their first speech. So you've got to get all these out of the way. And it's a really important moment for the for the new members. And given that we've got this record number of teals, we've had to sort of really concertina the first speeches in. So it's been massively busy. There's been a massive agenda that they're, they're putting to Parliament. So the climate change bill went through on Thursday, the lower house. And so I often look at it covering politics like I used to cover the AFL for a couple of years after I left the Sydney Morning Herald. And it's not dissimilar in that, that you've got key players you have to watch that you know are spectacular. And I don't mean spectacular in a political sense. I mean spectacular in an image sense because you couldn't describe some of the players that we have on the scene in our country as spectacular political players. But you know who to watch. And the photograph that you mentioned of Bridget Archer crossing the floor, it's a rare thing that a politician of any major party crosses the floor against the wishes of their party. So 
we had one eye on her as well as the other main players. And I was watching uh, when the final vote, uh, and she got up from a chair, and I just put the camera on her, and I left it wide enough so that I could get reactions from other players. And that's when she crossed over, and Zali Stebel put her arm out, the independent member for uh, Warringah, and it made a picture. And things come together. Luck's involved, skills involved, timing's involved, your ability to use your equipment's involved, and sometimes it all comes together in this magic sort of pixel dance that uh, records on your CCD on the camera, and and the results are, you know, they're very satisfying when you've recorded these really quite momentous events and condensed them down to a single moment of time. Take us into that a little more deeply. The picture you're describing shows Zali Stegel with her arm extended. She put her arm around her as she passed by, and Bridget was headed to a chair. They, because there's so many teals and independents and cross benches, they've had to put more chairs in. So, Because when you take a division, of course, you've got to take the person's name, so they need to be sitting and motionless. So they've had to put all these other chairs up the back of the, uh, the government side so that when the teals cross the floor, they've actually got somewhere to sit. Because when the tellers get up to write down who's voting who, it's really hard if people are moving around. So you really have to be seated. It's in the standing order. So Bridget was heading to one of those chairs and Zali just had this moment where she put her arm around her. There were a lot of key moments during the debates this week, but that, that was one of them. And, and it's it's kind of funny that every single event like that condenses itself down to one picture, I suppose, and I think that was it. Anthony Albanese later on went up to speak to them just before the final vote, and that made a picture as well. But it was pretty low-key. You know, there wasn't the sort of dancing that happened when the former government repealed the carbon tax. You might remember there was a very famous photo, Alex Ellinghausen and myself got, of Greg Hunt and a number of other government members sort of getting up and embracing and sort of doing a little jig on the floor when the carbon tax was repealed. And that was the picture for that moment. And yesterday it was probably Bridget crossing the floor. It's a big thing. You know, it's a brave thing to cross the floor against the wishes of your party because there's repercussions for those actions. We're going to start digging into some of the theory of photography and photojournalism. And let's take that picture as an example that has to be captioned, doesn't it, to make real and immediate sense to the reader or to the person looking at it online. It either has to be captioned or you have to have a lot of pre-knowledge about what went on. So it does need to be captioned. It needs to be captioned. You know, the caption should add to the photograph. It should be truthful and prop up what's actually happening. Many captions, you know, you can change the meaning of a picture by the, the caption. So I try to play a dead bat with captions, just say who it was, where it was, what they were doing. To stray anywhere around is sort of editorialising a bit, so you need to be really careful what you do with the captions. And in the digital era, of course, the photographs, when they go into an archive, they can only be searched and accessed through the metadata connected to them. The photographer needs to put as much in there and think down the track, what will someone search for in 10 years' time if they're looking for a photograph of that particular moment in time and what are they likely to know of it because the memory will fade. So you need to put enough in there and it's other people's jobs to put in keywords and stuff. Mine's just to really just say what, when, where, why, how. The live blog, I love live blogs, whether it's The Guardian, which is my favourite, or the Sydney Morning Herald, the ABC runs live blogs. It's become a form, a digital form now, an online form. It has an immediacy, almost like radio in a way, which is my background, but it has the pictures, it has the Twitter feeds, it has it all coming together in a synthesis. Just describe for us very briefly, because I'm a sticky beak, how does that production of that work? Who decides what pictures go up? How do you get the pictures to the people running the blog, etc.? What's the decision-making, the journalistic decision-making, behind how that live blog is put together? From where I sit, I just try to roll out the photographs as they're happening. So I try to take the key moments, get the moments of peak action, like I was talking about before. I wirelessly put them into my computer, or I can put them into my phone, or if I'm on the road, or I've got an iPad, and I connect a caption to it, a basic caption, and I feed it into a system that we have at The Guardian known as The Grid. I will then, if it's really important, I'll send a few lines to whoever's doing the blog, in this case yesterday, Amy Ramikas, the wonderful Amy Ramikas, who I work very closely with. And I just say to her, Bridget crossing floor, Zali arms out, just enough for her to 
put my name into the grid and it'll pop up and she'll see the bizarrely arm out and pull it. But, I mean, Amy's got a quite unique way of doing things that I quite often don't see. I'm inside the washing machine and it's on fast spin. Amy's there with an overview of everything that's going on. And she quite often pulls a picture out that I wouldn't have thought, but it actually is the right decision most of the time. 99.9% of the time, Amy will pull a picture that is the right picture that I wouldn't have thought of. So it's great to have her eyes on it because she's got a unique way of looking at the world. And in many ways, you know, let's not tell her this, but she makes my work look better, I think. (laughs) In a sense, she's acting as a picture editor on the run as well. Basically, yeah. And this is really different, isn't it, from your earlier career where you are in fact, a picture editor at the Sydney Morning Herald where everything's on a much slower cycle. It has to go to print. It has to be placed within a format. You would come back to the office and process your film and then make prints in the black and white days, scan them in later on when it was digital. Before we went to digital cameras, you'd scan your film in. And then, uh, you know, we physically used to bring printed products to the conference table and you'd have five or six prints from every job and they would make a selection. And they used to take a great deal of time, particularly the Saturday newspapers, in selecting what was on page one above the fold. You know, what you could see when it was folded up on the newsstand in a newsagent's had a very important part to play, particularly page one, but also to a lesser extent, page three and page five. Because the page one, the right selection, one of the editors of the Herald used to tell me that it could mean the difference between twenty to 30,000 more copies if you got it right, because it's the first thing an eye is drawn to. And then later when you bought the paper, it's the first thing your eye lands on. I, I had the wonderful editor, Liz Terrell, who used to describe it as the photograph is the lily pad for the eye to land on and rest if it likes. And then you go to the headline and then you'll commit to reading it or moving on. So I think all the same rules still apply online. All the, the rules of the way your eye works, what the photograph does, it, it attracts your eye to it. If you like it, you'll probably read the headline and then you'll commit to reading it. So I think all those rules apply. It's just that you have an endless ability to put more and more on because you just scroll down. And perhaps, Mike, there was a sense, I'm just going back in my own memory here, when you saw an amazing photograph above the fold in a newspaper in the old days, and then, of course, they were black and white and later colour. That was a big development in on newsprint. Yeah. But there was a sense, too, that you wanted it as a collectible. Yeah, kind of a, a keepsake. And I still have, my dad was the political journalist, Peter Bowers, and I still have many of his more famous stories that I've, I've kept in print, yellowing now because the newsprint is not very quality paper, but uh, yeah, I've still got them in, in the drawer somewhere. I want you to take us back a few weeks now, if you can bear to do this. We now have the new parliament, but we've just come out of an election. You were flat chat on the buses. Unfortunately, you had a dose of COVID between the end of the election and the beginning of parliament, which I sympathise with. But you were on the buses, on the campaign trail, on the hustings, as they call it. You talk about busy. That must have been extremely busy. But I want to ask you how you feel as a photojournalist, being on what a a largely confected political party stunts, if you like, or events, and photographing those and bringing those images to us. How do you see your role as part of a what is essentially, from the party political point of view, a propaganda process? They try their very, very best to present themselves in a way in these, as you say, completely manufactured events that have absolutely nothing to do with reality, really. I and mean, this is both sides, all sides of politics, you know, all sides. They present these, you know, picture opportunities or pick facts, as we used to call them. I'm not convinced, Peter, that it moves the dial one inch. Um, you know, most of this stuff is for the TV cameras, for the nightly news. We're looking for the, the truth in it, I suppose, to try and get a picture that sort of cuts through the sort of flippant. You almost have to be there. We're doing less and less of it, The Guardian. We... We did not do the entire on the buses this time. We decided to spend our money going to regional, rural electorates, marginal electorates, and we did election seat profiles in many of the seats. I I did about 8,000 kilometres driving during the election to these seats, and and it's purely because that reason. We, We use the pictures from our colleagues at AAP. They get on the buses and do it from day one to the finish, and Catherine Murphy and myself went on the campaign 
for a few weeks. But you're right in what you say, that these are manufactured events. I guess when you're inside the buses and you're on there, you're looking for those moments that tell you something a little bit more than just the, the stage-managed events that they want you to see. So, yeah, look, it's, it, in many ways, it's a very old-fashioned way of campaigning. And, and I think it's going to... The sheer costs of it are prohibitive. I think we're going to see less and less people going on these. And the parties can target people much more effectively, you know, digitally. Now, you know, the Facebook Live events and they can target it to locations and demographics and people's likes and dislikes. You can you can micro-target it specifically. And, and I think that's kind of the future of campaigning as opposed to the sort of out on the hustings, up on the soapbox giving you a spiel. I remember the 93 campaign with John Hewson and we all knew the speech that he gave because it was, with few exceptions, it was almost the same thing that happened day in, day out, sometimes two and three times. And uh, we used to take bets on when the tub of butter reference would come up. And we've moved a long way from there. You know, from, that was 93 and it was pre-internet, pre-email almost, pre digital cameras, we've moved an awful long way. And in many ways, the electioneering hasn't moved on, but I think I'm seeing signs that it is. So, and certainly at The Guardian, we see greater value in getting out. And, you know, the one message I got in 2019, I kept coming back to the office and Murph would say to me, what have you learnt? And I'd say, they don't like Shorten. You know, we'd have the discussion about how that's not what the poll said. Later on, I said, you know, we had it. We were out there talking to people and we'd vox pop people. We had the message. He wasn't going down in the electorate, despite what the polls were saying. This time, the overwhelming message was that they didn't like the Prime Minister. That is what happened in the end. And I think many of our colleagues were quite burnt from 2019 because of the polls and were scared to come out and go. I just kept thinking someone who is this on the nose cannot surely be re-elected and, and that's what's happened. So from a personal point of view, having covered lots of these over many years, I think there's greater value in getting out and about and seeing what the feeling on the ground is. But even people within his own party disliked the Prime Minister. So I just couldn't see any way that someone has universally disliked the message I was getting, whether it was rural areas or semi-rural or inner city, just wouldn't get back in. And that is what eventuated. That's interesting that you put it in that frame, Mike, because I guess as a print journalist or a text journalist like Catherine Murphy, she'd be out there with one way of observing and, and experiencing as a photographer and having your ears open as well, listening to people, watching people, observing and acting as an eyewitness. That brings you a different sort of perspective on things, doesn't it? And so you do bring back those different messages. Well, it, it kind of does. And I've noticed people treat Murph and me differently. Like with Murph, she's she's on the record, you know. She's asking people and they know they're going to be quoted. And Whereas when I'm photographing them, they're chit-chatting with you as you're getting set up with lights or positioning them and they're, they're talking to you and they're not really have the same guards up, I think. And quite often... I'll say, you know, Bugalug said this uh, when, I, when I was photographing him and it's, it's quite a different view to what was said during the interview. And politicians are like that too. They think, I don't know whether they think we're stupid or we don't remember what they say or whether I'm just a silly photographer and don't really have a brain of my own, but they tell you the most extraordinary things sometimes and you go, did you really mean to tell me that? <laughs> like, yeah, you get a very different perspective from our written colleagues. Mike, I hope you don't mind. I just want to weave in as a, an ex-lecturer, university lecturer in journalism, and uh, often used to cite you and, and talk about journalism and use mini case studies on various aspects of photojournalism. So I, I do have a bit of theory in my head. I hope you don't mind going down that path. And one immediate question that relates to what you've just been describing as I think you'll agree, all print and on-screen journalism is essentially visual. You've got the verbal symbols, which we call the alphabet, I suppose, and pictorial images, including photography, and these days lots of graphs and data journalism kicking in in a big way. What, in your view, after years of experience, what is the essential relationship between text and image? Well, an image should take the text further. It should do something that the text either can't for a legal reason or can't for any other of the myriad of reasons and it should add to it. It should try not to repeat what the text does. It should spark interest in the reader. As I said before, it's the first thing the eye lands on. So the initial thought about whether someone's going to invest the time 
and we're all time poor, Peter, nowadays. So it's vitally important that the picture is interesting. And in this digital age, we are confronted with a blizzard of imagery, most of which is garbage. It's just noise, really. And so what I've found is that really strong visuals rise to the top and cut through. They cut through with the message. And so a really good photograph that is accompanying a text should take it further. It should, shouldn't detract from the text, should add to it, and should entice the reader to read on with the headline and then commit to actually reading the, the part. So, And those fundamentals I don't think have changed from, from newspaper days. I'm intrigued to know whether you feel at this stage in your career a veteran photojournalist, whether you're part of a a continuous tradition, a history. We know that photography, it's amazing how recently photography was invented in in the early 19th century, and then there were some seminal movements. A lot of photojournalism seems rooted in war photography. We've got, of course, the Matthew Brady images, his and his team in the American Civil War, the Crimean War from people like Roger Fenton. And some of those burning images are war images. So... As you look back over that tradition, that history, do you see yourself, Mike, fitting into that unbroken tradition? I don't think it's a clear line. You know, the the first photographic process that was commercially available was the daguerreotype, and Louis Daguerre invented it in in the late 1830s, and he released it to the world in 1839, I think it was, and it was a very slow process. So one of the first pictures he he took is of a streetscape, and there's a bloke getting his shoes shined, and the bloke's very blurry. In the portrait studios where it was mainly used as portraiture, there were these really medieval neck braces and things to hold the suitor still. So it was a very limited use in a photojournalistic sense because you, you couldn't freeze anything with it. You know, you couldn't use it for sports. You couldn't use it for any sort of action. It was a very basic. And then we moved on to things like amber types and the wet process, which you mentioned, Brady. Matthew Brady, the Civil War photographer, used with his travelling darkrooms. He would travel around the battlefields and it was one of the very first times. The Crimea was also another example of of a time when the early photo processes were used to bring home the horrors of of what war was. And, and, you know, the really sad thing about Brady, he took all that work and at the end of the war, no one really wanted to know about it because it was so horrific and the glass was worth more than the images were and they ended up in glass houses and... You know, I've seen pictures of glass houses with negatives and, I mean, what a shame. I look back to people like Jacob Rees, who was a Dutch-American immigrant who in 1888 got a job with the New York Tribune and he used his photographs to document the terrible living conditions in New York City slums and was one of the very first. He made his own flash powder concoction to light these terribly dark and dingy places, and the results absolutely polarised and shocked the general public that people could live in such squalor and, and downtrodden way, and, and it actually prompted Theodore Roosevelt to change his housing policies in the city of New York. And that, I think, is Brady and then people like Reese is the, is the root of the documentary-type photograph. The half-plate photographic process really didn't become viable. So your ability to put a photograph into a printed product until sort of the late 1870s, early 1880s. And in Australia, newspapers like the Sydney Mail, which was a weekly edition and had less time constraints than the daily edition, started to use them first. And of course, Australia being Australia, it was sports that led the way with that. And it wasn't until the turn of the century in the early 20s. So 1909 was the first time the newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, which I used to work on, ran a photograph. And the occasion was the visit to Sydney of Teddy Roosevelt's Great White Fleet. And it was a massive thing at the time. So out came this Great White Fleet and half a million people lined the shores of Sydney Harbour to see it. So the the Herald decided they were going to run some pictures, but obviously didn't trust the process because on the page before where the pictures run, and in those days the front page used to be all advertisements. There was no news on it. It was just all advertisements. That's the way they did it. So inside the very first page, which would be page one nowadays, was a drawing. So they obviously didn't trust the photo process. And then the next page was the half-tone photo of the White Fleet in Sydney Harbour. So they took a little bit of an each-way bet. I've worked with editors like that that like to hedge their bets in case they don't trust the photographic process. That is a tradition that continues to this day 
can I say? The photographers in the early days when they started to run these pictures were drawn from the big photographic studios. So in Victorian times, before magazines and newspapers ran photos, every Victorian parlour of any substance in Australia had a book of scenes. And what you would do, you would go to the big studios. There was one in Sydney called Carrier Company, and they'd have 60, 70, 80,000 scenes of Australia. So the photographers would travel Australia and do, say, Ayers Rock or country scenes with Swagman was a very big thing. So the newspapers poached these photographers. They used to travel on horseback with their huge glass plate cameras and do these very sort of stylized pictures that people would pick. And so you'd have you'd, you'd choose your own scenes and you'd have a book. And that was entertainment. You'd open the book of scenes and you'd all look at the, oh, look, you know, here's Wagga Wagga. And, and so the early newspaper photographers had this very stylized way of going about things, setting things up and... You know, and the technology and the, the, the bulkiness of the cameras and the fact they were glass plates really did sort of hamper what they could and couldn't do. It was things like the First World War where Kodak sold little folding pocket cameras, the soldier's Kodak. And so the big part of the collection in the Australian War Memorial that teaches so much about what went on in the trenches in Gallipoli were from those soldier photographers. So that had a huge influence, I think, on what you could do with photography and we move on a bit to like the collection the Sydney Morning Herald had of glass plates of the construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge was just the most fascinating thing to go and look because they used it like a, a big documentary event so from start to finish they crawled all over it and they must have had great access because there's some amazing photographs of it it grew from this time when you had studio photographers that, that used a very stylized form of photography to a point when they started to document it and we recognise it today as being photojournalistic work. So it grew slowly, I guess. You're touching on a whole lot of stylistics there, which we maybe had to circle back to. I want to ask you, though, because we first started having a chat by way of preparation for this podcast about staff photographers in politicians' own offices, citing the example of Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce, having staff photographers take pictures of their masters out in public doing things, some of those confected events we referred to earlier, and then those images somehow finding their way into newspapers. Now, I think I can already divine your attitude to using what are essentially staff-generated photographs, propaganda, if you like, and then finding them in, in journalistic pages. What are the essential differences between a photo taken by someone employed by a politician and someone like you, a photojournalist? Both technically, what is the difference? And then we're going to start creeping up on the ethics of actually using them. Well, technically, there's very little difference because a lot of these guys used to work for newspapers. Newspapers, basically, the staffing levels have collapsed. When I took over as boss at the Sydney Morning Herald uh, in 2001, early 2001, February, we had in Sydney and around Australia, uh, 47 FTEs, we call them full-time equivalents. So there were 47 photographers. And remember, we had like three in Canberra and we had one in Darwin and we had one in Brisbane and they were all over the place. Plus, we had a huge studio out at Alexandria where we used to do things like cushions and pillows for all the magazines and things like that. So it sounds like a big number, but once you sort of staff it seven days a week and break it down, we had about 12 or 13 on news every day and we used to cover everything. So we went from having all those to very few now. So there's a lot of photographers who are out of work. So they found work by being employed by organisations. Not only politicians do it. The NRL has its own photo department. The AFL has its own photo department. Uh, Tennis Australia employs its own photographers for these events. And they get access that people like myself don't get. So, you know, and in politics particularly, access is everything. Everything. If you have 24-hour access to your subject, you will get pictures that no one else gets, you know. And if you're a former newspaper photographer, you would shoot them in the style. So they look, feel and smell like photojournalistic work. But the primary intent is to promote the person you're working for. So anyone whose primary intent is to be employed to promote the person is a propaganda worker, basically. So... And Mike, technically, you said there's not much difference and these are highly trained photographers. They come from a journalistic background. But let's get right down to the moment of pressing the button when you're framing, looking around at angles, and you talked about intent. That intent must modulate what you actually put in the frame. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, so much goes into making a picture. You make, you make 
conscious and subconscious sometimes decisions in the blink of an eye or the flick of a shutter. The intent with anyone that's employed by these organisations, and we've seen this in, in, you know, the AFL doesn't like, it, it stopped one of its journalists from publishing stuff a few years back that it didn't think saw it in a good light. So the very nature of what you do include and don't include, you know, goes to intent and the overall makeup of it. So unless you are, you know, working for an organisation that, that will publish stuff without fear or favour, you, you are basically, you know, producing PR, and this is not to denigrate the work of these photographers. They're very, they're employed because they're really, really good at what they do. And they really add something to the politicians, in this case, is Instagram. Like, you know, Pete Souza, for instance, worked for the White House and he was a press photographer, a very upstanding press photographer who had great morals and great editorial rigor around what he did. And, you know, Barack Obama employed him because he was really good at what he did. And I don't think, knowing his work, I don't think he set things up or tried to manipulate them in any way. He just had brilliant access. But it doesn't change the fact that he worked for the White House. And they're pretty stringent about running those things in publications. And if they do run them, they have to be marked clearly that this stuff is... And and in, in this era where there's less and less staff on publications, the temptation is, well, you know, we don't have to send someone to Fiji because... Let's just get Scott Morrison's photographer to send us some photos of him at a meeting. What does it matter? And it's the thin end of the wedge because once you accept you're going to run this stuff, and and some of these photographers are former employees of the newspapers they're running in. So unless you actually know this chap used to work for them and now doesn't, you know, it just would look like, unless you have a disclaimer that says this is from the Prime Minister's office, you just think, well, it's just another newspaper photo. So I've got to ask then, where does that leave us citizen consumers of journalism and news? You mentioned Pete D'Souza, and I'm glad you raised him because I love his images, and you mentioned access. Pete is an amazing, amazing photographer. Yeah, he was in the lift when Michelle and Barack Obama are there, maybe having a more intimate moment, and all those many, many images, some of which look like fairly stock Oval Office images, but others were quite remarkable images. So where does it leave someone just like me or someone with less media literacy parsing all these images? Where does it leave us? There's a difference between consuming Pete's work now in the book because you can look at these moments and they're they're historically important. They're documentary now. They're documentary now. But when he's in office and you're running a daily publication, that's a very different matter to run those pictures and pass them off as being, you know, documentary work of day to day, which they are, but... There's still the intent is to produce and make your client look good. So it's it, I think it goes to intent, but it doesn't stop the fact that, that I've got someone's given me that. In fact, I've got two copies of that book that someone's given me over the years, and, and it's a very powerful body of work. It's amazingly historical, powerful, and I, I'm told that he had written into his contract that he wasn't to be kept out of anything, so he would do the job if he had access to everything he wanted, which is why you see him in places like the the room where they were Osama bin Laden, where they were down there when that strike was coming through. And he just was there at everything. Which contrasts recently, and just while we're talking about intent and access, the photographer, the White House photographer, was apparently allegedly shut out of those crucial hours uh, during the invasion of the Capitol. Yes. There is a White House photographer, but the bang, all of a sudden we have no images from that uh, crucial period. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> exactly, yes. But that's the other side of the coin, isn't it? I really? suppose so, yeah. I'm told that he, he got on very well with Barack Obama. He, he used to work in the Reagan White House as well, Pete. So his ethics and his morals, I think, are beyond question. He's always put editorial rigour into the work that he does. So, you know, again, it comes down to the person too. Like the person working for you, if they've got a really solid reputation prior to getting there, is probably not going to do things which aren't, you know, crossing a line somewhere as far as truthfulness goes. However, it's still your primary intent of your employment is to produce work that shows the organisation or the person you're working for in a good light. So it's, it's PR. While we're talking about intent and perhaps drawing upon your experience as a picture editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, I look at, let's take The Guardian, your newspaper. I can see a headline which says something like, Scott Morrison, blah, 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 under pressure. And there's a picture of Scott Morrison with one of those downcast, sour, 
grimaces. There was a lot of those this week, to be fair, Pete. Yeah, yeah. But is that photojournalism or is that highly selective illustration? <sighs> I mean, how many times do you have to pull that downcast face before it becomes what you were doing during that time? It still is, by its very definition, pulling out a moment in time. But it is unmoored. If-, if it's unmoored from this week, Scott Morrison was uncomfortable all week. He was uncomfortable sitting in the back rows. He was uncomfortable with the attention we were giving him because you always give a former leader when they go to the back bench attention. He just looked uncomfortable. And an illustration of him looking uncomfortable is how I saw him this week. So it does come down to how you interpret stuff as well, I think, your own interpretation of it. Yes, but are you saying that The Guardian, for example, or other newspapers haven't used a stock photo of a politician looking a bit grumpy, etc., to illustrate a story rather than be a true piece of photojournalism that has all that accuracy and relevance built in. Well, again, where, where is the line drawn? Like how... That's what I'm asking you. How many moments? If, if, he, if, if a person is overwhelmingly looking uncomfortable, I say I think that an, an illustration of them or one of my pictures of him looking uncomfortable is not beyond the realms of possibility. If he pulled a face for one second of what was an hour long where he was laughing, you know, it comes down to the person who's filing that stuff, in this case, me. So, uh, you know, like if, if I was just looking for that moment where he was looking grumpy and sent one photo when, in fact, the overall demeanour of the person throughout the hour that I was there was that they were laughing and happy, that would be misleading. So, again, it, it's sort of the PC thing. It comes down to the person's editorial rigour around what they do, I suppose. Mm. We're seeing a fair bit of that right now, aren't we, with Dom Perrottet and the Barilaro saga. We're seeing that extraordinary... Under stress picture of Dom Perrottet, are you saying that's the legitimate way of presenting his visage at the moment? I can't comment. I haven't. I, I have never actually been at a press conference with Dom Perrottet, so I, I just, I just can't comment about how you know. I mean, I see the grabs on the TV. He looks like he's under pressure, but unless I was there for the whole, you know, those press conferences can go for forty-five minutes an hour. I couldn't comment with any degree of relevancy. I just... You can see what I'm getting at here, though, because say you're in a press conference with Dom Perrottet, he may be looking really distressed one moment, but then he may be putting on his confident, happy, smiling face the next within the same press conference. When it comes down to the selection of the image to sit with that story, whether online or in print, there are all sorts of questions swirling around, aren't they? Ethical questions, moral questions. You no, know, I guess the only way through that is if you read a series of them. Yeah. At any point, it's going to come down to your judgment on whether he was predominantly under pressure. To me, it looks like he's under pressure at the moment. I would be quite comfortable running pictures of Dom Perrottet under pressure because his entire, you know, political future, I think, is on the line at the moment. Yes. They'd like to say they're not under pressure, but they are. They are under huge pressure. I would not have a problem with running a picture of him looking under pressure because he is. And from what I've seen on TV, he looks like he's under a lot of pressure, so... I hear what you're saying, but the only way to do it would be to run, you know, here he is at 11, here he is at 11.01, here he is at 11.02. Like, at some point, you have to make a judgment on what it is, you know, you're wanting to say about the, the overall uh, feel of the press conference, I suppose. And it does ultimately, doesn't it? And this is perhaps a subtext of our conversation that it goes back to the very essence of what a photograph is, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny slice, a frozen moment. Yeah. And how many muscles in the human face? A couple hundred, I think. And the expression that you capture is just that one tiny frozen moment, whether it's a politician or an artist or a musician, whatever. That is the essence of photography, the frozen moment. Well, it is. And it's, it's using the frozen moment to try and sum up a greater amount of time, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I've been reading up on the history of the ethics of photojournalism, and, and some of it quite bemuses me because, as you and I both know, post-production, fiddling with the negative of the images, colorizing, all the rest of it's been around since the dawn of photography almost. And of course, now with digital, we're right down at the pixel level. You can do almost anything with a visual image. So I'm interested to know, you seem to be churning out photographs quite quickly, for example, for the live blog. Do you do any post-production? Do you reframe? Do you adjust exposure? Adjust the colour balance. This building is wildly... With the fluoros. You've got sodium vapour in the in the roofs of both the Senate chamber and the reps. Uh, you've got daylight coming in to mix with it. So you have 6,000-odd Kelvins mixing with 4,200. There are tungsten lights, 3,200. So you get this wild mix of that a modern camera just can't 
really balanced. The, the cabinet room, for instance, is it's down below that of a candle. So it's like our cameras only go to 2,500 kelvins and it's still yellow. So you have to actually use the um, the adjustment to try and get anything looks like it. Otherwise, the skin tones, they'd look like they were jaundiced. So I do use that, but uh, that's that's it. I don't use any sort of hand of God darkening and lightening. I will pull up the shadows a little teeny bit. It's none of this sort of, you know, wild sort of use of vignettes or anything like that. Color balance and certainly no use of the cloning tools or anything that's removed something or adds it. Some of the examples given in some of the reading I have been doing is, for example, you mentioned the contrast and dusting all the, the blacks, etc. You can create a sky behind a certain event yeah. that looks more threatening and dark and dramatic. But of course, at the end of the day, it's all just representation. A lot of these decisions are arbitrary. Sure, but if you're skillful enough, you can do most of it in the camera. If you know what you're doing, you can do most of it in the camera. What you're telling me then implies there's a truth in a certain photograph because it's taken within certain parameters. Is that what you're saying to me? Well, as you pointed out, every single photograph is a representation. It's more truthful the rawer it is, I think. But what if you're overexposed, for example? It was a very difficult lighting situation and there's a big burnout in one corner, etc., which you don't like very much. All those exposure questions. When I read the ethics, they're very purist. They say, don't do anything that you couldn't do in a dark room and don't adjust lighting, don't colour balance. You could do anything. I mean, yeah. that, that's such a nonsense. There are a lot of really dodgy stuff done in dark rooms, you know, from my, <laughs> yes. my experience with it. Yes. Um, balancing the exposure... Learning how light operates is the key to photography. Balancing it and being able to use light so that you can highlight what you need to and hide what you don't want to see is part of being a photographer. And I think if you can't do it in the camera, you shouldn't try to do it on your laptop. They're just the simple rules that I apply to. Lots of people don't feel like that. And um, I've been and spoken at places like the Australian Institute of Professional Photographers who manipulate landscape images just to their heart's content and they just don't understand this sort of don't touch the image thing. Why would you do that? It's a crappy image. That's fine. That's illustrative. They can do what they like with it. But I think if you're going to be trusted, you know, you can't make up something that someone says to put in the introduction of a story and removing or adding things to a picture using a cloning tool or using hand of God retouching. So you're lightening and darkening something to the point where it just bears no relevance to what it looked like in the real world is me tantamount to making up quotes in a story. You have to maintain some form of truthfulness in your work. You have to maintain some sort of objectivity in what you're showing. Even if, you know, like I was out yesterday and I was trying to show the rain. Rain is, a, it was pissing down rain here all day. And um, they said, we want some weather pictures. So, well, how do you show rain, you know? Anyway, I went out to the front of Parliament and I got my biggest flash gear and I and I flashed the rain and, you, and used a show slow speed and the, the drops all highlighted with this big white streak and down it came. Now, that's using lighting and equipment to do something that your eye can't see. But it's still an accurate representation of rain falling. It's just me using my skills and ability to highlight the rain so you can see it. And framing is the same thing for you. You don't uh, adjust the frame. That would, if we're looking at ethics, etc., would alter the relationship between personnel uh, elements in the picture. So it's the original frame. Framing, framing will change it, but I, I like, I, I will have no problem cropping out. Like Mike Hughes, the sergeant at arms, was on the side of that photograph of Bridget in the in the full frame. It added nothing to the picture. He was just standing at the door because that's what the sergeant or the deputy sergeant, I think is his is his title, does when there's a division being called, so that when the doors are locked, he's standing there, you know, at the door. And it, it just added nothing to the, the image and it didn't intrinsically say anything. So I, I just I wanted a bit tighter on Zali and her, so I, I cropped him out. I think cropping's always been something that I've done. I don't have a problem with cropping in on a picture. It changes it, yes, but, um, you know, and should I have been on a longer lens? Probably, but I wanted the ability to be wider if I needed to be. So you, you make all these decisions in a split second, and uh, I, I don't have a problem with cropping. It's interesting that you describe all that because we, my wife and I, do a fair bit of wildlife photography, including in Africa, but most of the time we're stuck in a vehicle. So are you in a similar situation? Are you raised up? You're, you're in a particular position. You can't move around all that much when you're getting your shots? There's three rungs of the press gallery, right. um, which is behind the Speaker in the House of Reps and behind the President in the Senate. 
and we can move back and forth. We can go around to the north and south galleries or the um, speaker's gallery, which is the one facing the speaker. In the press gallery, we can move back and forth and we can move back and forth in the north and south. We are more constrained in the speaker and the president's gallery and what we can do, but we still have a bit of movement left and right. So you need to, like, I was wrong-footed when Scott Morrison came to be sworn in because I thought he'd go to the opposition benches. So I placed myself in the uh, north gallery, so I was facing the opposition benches and uh, he came in the door just next to the speaker and had his back to us, so I had to race around <laughs> to get him, you know, being sworn in. So you, you can be wrong-footed and you can overthink it sometimes too. You know, no matter how good you are at your job, there's an element of luck in what we do. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. Our guest is Mike Bowers, photographer at large for The Guardian newspaper in Australia. Now, for the camera nerds, and I confess I'm one of them, what equipment are you using these days? And lenses particularly, you're operating on a 400mm a lot of the time or wider lens? I have parked my fixed uh, long lenses. So I've got a 4, a 5 and a 3. I'm not using them very much anymore. I bought one of the new 2 to 400 zooms with a 1.4 built-in converter. It is the perfect uh, lens for the chambers. It gets back to sports photography, I think. It does. It does a bit, yeah. You can get, you can flick with the flick of a switch rather than having to put a converter on. You can just pull the converter in. It's just so versatile. It's it's a, It's been a game changer for me. I carry two bodies with me most of the time. I, um, I use 1DX Mark Threes, I think they are. Uh, they're the top-of-the-line Canon ones. I, I would very much like to go to mirrorless because all the boys have got mirrorless stuff and it's silent. And now... My cameras are really noisy, and it stands out because everyone else has got silent cameras, and mine going gunk, 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 you know, with the with the mirror slapping back and forth. And the prime minister, the new prime minister, Anthony Albanese, has pulled me up a few times and goes, "Why are your cameras so noisy?" I said, "Yeah, I need some new ones, boss." I'm still looking through the lens, and I've already done that with wildlife, and I hesitate to go to mirrorless because I'm so. And going back to my earlier training in film cinematography, I prefer to look through the lens rather than at a little video screen. Well, look, I felt like that till I borrowed one of the new Canon mirrorless ones and used it the other day. And you can immediately tell when your exposure is wonky, like immediately because it looks like it is wonky. So like you can sometimes bump your settings and you can rattle off a few frames, quite a few before you realize, oh dear, I'm two stops under or whereas it gives you a live representation of what the exposure is it, there's no mistaking it i actually i think i'm just going to have to uh, shelve my dinosaur ways and get with the program now mike you alluded to the number of images that have been generated as we've been talking there are probably another zillion images have happened around the globe the globe is a flood with photographic images these days professional and amateur journalistic and artistic is there any rigor at all to cataloging attribution which is crucial accurate captioning or is it all pretty random. Look, captions are vitally important. I touched on it before. The only way you can access a digital image is through what's written on it. So you have to try and think, how would this be searched for in 10, 20, 50, 100 years time? But it doesn't matter what you put in the metadata, or even if you watermark stuff. If you've got an image, once you press the button and it's out in what I call the digital badlands, it's going to ride off in any direction it wants to, because People just use it. There's no feeling of ownership on the internet with imagery. It just, I have a very famous photo I took back in 2000 at Gallipoli, and it just ticks every box. It was when they opened up the new commemorative area, when they moved the dawn service from the beach cemetery up the road to the new area, and it's got the words Anzac. It's actually a dusk, but it looks like dawn, and there's a digger in a hat with a bugle in a silhouette. So it ticks every single box. A few years ago, I stuck it in the Google image search and there was hundreds and hundreds of pages of that image being illegally used. Really disturbingly, like you can't control this stuff once it's gone, but really disturbingly, there were schools in Australia that had it up to illustrate what they were doing for Anzac Day. Now, when you're teaching in tertiary institutions, where tertiary institutions are stealing images to illustrate something, 
there really is something wrong. What is what hope is there for the next generation to learn that that copyright's mine? I own that copyright. You know, and I've, I've times where I've, I've actually rung up tour operators and said, you know, that that image you're using, you know, you're a commercial operation. I am a photographer, and that is my image. And you know, unless you've got an agreement with someone I don't know about, what's it doing there? If schools ask me for work, I give it to them. I just give whatever, you know, use it. If it's, for, if it's for educational purposes, I've got no problem with it. But stealing someone's image and using it as an institution, I think, is just appalling. There's the copyright issue, but there's also the accuracy issue, isn't there? And moral rights, how it's used. You know, I don't want my stuff being used by yeah. cigarette companies or people that have, you know, like it, you just, it, it's just, it opens up a can of worms. And, and because a lot of war images are, have a certain similarity, we see images popped around on particularly the socials purporting to show something. Of course, they don't. They might be in a different country, a different time, a different event. We're seeing that continually now, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, your stuff can turn up illustrating something that you had no idea about. You need to be really careful as a picture editor when you're illustrating sensitive stories, stories about vulnerable people or, you know, domestic violence or, or health or using some image that you've just found as a stock image because you just you've got no idea who the person is or what they are or it's fraught with danger it's a tough one i've got a great memory as a kid i was living in brisbane and would in milton just we just moved to brisbane from melbourne and and just up the road with the tennis courts and i took my new little box brownie which i was pretty excited about up there i just went wandering all by myself and and there were two tennis players sitting there one as it turned out was lou hode and the other ken rosewell and i just fronted up and went click Exclusive. And I've still got that photo, and they're looking up, who is this kid taking our photo? Do you remember the first time you took a picture? I do. My dad gave me an Instamatic, a little 126 cartridge, uh, when we lived in England. And uh, I used to, to, to drag it out all the time because we, we used to holiday all over the place when we were visiting there. And, um, and I can remember using it and, and distinctly remember the power of sort of getting it developed. You used to send it away and they'd come back in the mail, the photographs, the prints, and something very tactile about holding a print. And we get so used to um, looking at images on screen, you forget the power when it's actually beautifully printed and hung on the wall. I was a finalist in the um, portrait prize at the National Portrait Gallery this year, and I went to the opening a couple of weeks back and you just forget the power of great images. There was, you know, just these wonderful images framed and up on the wall. And I look at images every day on the computer and you just forget how powerful a statement it can make when you've got a beautifully printed, beautifully framed, beautifully presented, beautifully lit picture on a wall. It's, it's just got a power all of its own that um, we see less of nowadays. And of course, it used to be very common in the suburbs, slide nights and yeah. reversal stock and everyone yeah. looking at their pictures up on a big screen. That's all gone, West. It's all gone. Well, I inherited my father's Pentax Spotmatic when I was in my early teens. He had a 35 millimeter Pentax Spotmatic, which I wish I still had. Don't know where that went over the years, but that was my real first SLR camera. And I also inherited his medium format Yashica twin lens reflex camera. So dad was kind of a keen photographer and, I, and he... He gave me all his gear, and that's that's really what seeded my interest in photography and where it all started. Mike, you have a camera hanging off your body virtually all the time in your working life, and I guess when you're out just in leisure time, you probably take snaps as well. How has that shaped your visual perception as a human being? It, well, it kind of wrecks you. Living through a lens all yeah, the time. Yeah, I, I went to the football with my son, the Sydney Swans, last weekend to watch GWS, and... A game is just punctuated with, oh, that's a shot. Oh, look at that. That would have been great. You can never quite turn off. You know, I'm driving along somewhere and, and you just see the elements line up. And you go, oh, there's a picture and you've got to stop. I drive journalists mad when I've got them in the car with me because another 10 minutes, the sun will be in the right place. It's like, oh, God of sake, Bowers, get in the car. We've got another 400 kilometres to go. <laughs> So you've answered my question. In fact, living through a lens has shaped your visual perception. I dream like my, my, my this, this says a lot about my fears. I, I used to dream that I'd run out of film and, and then I was running around, you know, with pajama pants on at some news event and I didn't have film and no one would give me any. But since going digital, my dreams have morphed into the digital era and now I'm out of batteries and no one will give me a battery. I still have pajama pants on at news jobs, but uh, I've gone from not having film to not having batteries. 
I remember well, I was actually scuba diving on One Tree Island, photographing. I had a shot list, I had to get a little fish swimming in and out of a shot. I'm using 16 mil cine film, right? And you can hear it underwater going through and <laughs> waiting for the fish to swim in and out. These days, of course, they've got digital cameras and they shoot heaps more. That's part of what digital's done, isn't it? We, we shoot so many more shots, we shoot so much more footage. Yeah, it is. And Look, one of the things I've really noticed which is lacking is, since newspapers have fallen to bits is people's editing ability has fallen off. Like I, I spent time in dark rooms. What that teaches you is framing, framing and shot selection. You used to get a loop and look at and you'd, you'd mark a little round thing on the side of the film to the ones you'd want to print. That editing hasn't changed. We've got a lot more frames now. One of the things we didn't look at when we changed from film to digital was workflow which is one of the things that went by the wayside because we thought, oh, it's great, you know, we're shooting digital, we'll be able to see it. But, of course, you warm into a job, so your best shots are usually last. And the way you look at it on a screen is the shots come up first. And so the photographers would send you the pictures and you go, oh, that's not very good, that's not very good. And then last of all would come in the good shots because you warm into a job. What we should have realised is in workflow, start at the back, work your way down, <laughs> you know, when choosing the images, you know, especially a portrait, you know, your best pictures usually the last one you take. And so it was just one of the unforeseen things. What you keep and what you don't keep, like I've got hundreds of hard drives filled with material because I'm a bit of a hoarder as far as keeping images goes and I tend to err on the side of keep rather than chuck. Of course, so you raise that thing of hard drives. It is still very uncertain just how survivable all these media are. We don't know whether the next century will see all these images of yours. Someone once said to me, if you want your face to survive another 100 years, print it up on archival black and white. We know that the big magazines have gone, like Life and all those pictorial essays. They were just between the 30s and the 70s, I guess, in the last century. They were huge. Has the digital age brought not only some negatives, but also some positives in terms of new ways of storytelling? We see the galleries now online. The pictures have, to a large extent, being ripped away from the story and they're available online in forms of galleries, etc. Are there new forms of digital pictorial storytelling evolving in your view? Perhaps the, the photo essay in a different form with even music and speech and all sorts of other different ways of putting it all together. Can you anticipate that? There was a finite amount of space in printed products, so you had to be very careful in what you ran. You can build a bigger narrative online. And you can team it with natural sound and you can team it with music, as you say. So it allows you to build a narrative. It allows you to return to it. It allows you to do things that we never thought possible. I've got a project running down at, outside Cabago where I've got time-lapse cameras on some of the houses that burnt down and I've, I've followed their sort of clearing and then their rebuilding process, which I, I keep going back and interviewing them with video and taking still pictures. So online's opened up all those possibilities um, to tell the stories, build a narrative and revisit things that we never could have possibly done in print. So, And that's the opposite of the frozen moment, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And telling a story in a different way, allowing time to tell a story, I suppose. It's very versatile. There's a whole mass of things that are in the pipeline. And I think you've got to be open to the way this technology is changing our business Um you don't want to be like Kodak. They produced the very first digital camera in about 1975 and in their research team, and it was it was the size of a bookshelf. They said that uh, it would never go anywhere, so Kodak never pursued it, but they could have been on the ground with it and look where they are now. So I think you have to be really open to new technologies and the way they're used. You've used the word truth a few times in our conversation, and we've been circling around this idea of reality and representation and all the rest of it. That axiom... The camera never lies. Where does that sit these days? Any piece of technology can be made to lie in the wrong hands. I think it comes down again to the person and the way they use it. Their reputation for using it in a fair and equitable manner. But we are seeing the emergence now, aren't we, both in photography, audio in my realm and in cine. We're seeing superbly convincing and persuasive fakes, aren't we? Well, the deep fake, the deep fake is... The deep fake is extraordinary. Once you're at the pixel level, you can do almost anything. Yeah, they're amazing. They are amazing. It's amazing mm. technology. I don't know that it adds anything to uh, to news work. It's another way of eroding the trust people have in what they're actually looking at. So I think it's a challenge for us as, as time progresses to maintain our ability to have 
our audience trust us and view what we do with any degree of truthfulness. And it is definitely a challenge for all of us to look at the way we operate. Who have been the most influential photojournalists or documentary photographers on your particular work? And we can go broad here because there's artistic photography, there's photojournalism. The people that have influenced me, David Moore, the famous photographer who took uh, images like um, the migrants arriving in Sydney, uh, in 1966, the look on their faces, he was, I think, the finest photojournalist this country's produced. His ability to tell a story it was particularly Australian and had an Australian flavour. He had a sympathy for his subject. You know, he was never cruel with it. Max Dupayne, can't go past him. Olive Cotton, some of her masterpieces like the Teacup Ballet. Harold Casneau, an early photographer. And his work, the work that's probably had the biggest influence on me was Dupain's Sisters of Charity. It was shot down on top of these sisters and they had the winged habits on. And I just remember it had a profound effect on me. I was at high school when I first saw it and it just, it just lit a fire in me. I wanted to be able to produce stuff like that. I found a sort of an obscure book by a chap called Marcus Halevi. Um, it was published way back in the mid-70s and it was on the Alaskan pipeline um, in the drill workers. And he obviously spent, you know, a lot of time, like a year, I think, summer and winter, photographing the life up there. And it was, it's in black and white. And it's just, it's just the most powerful collection of pictures. And I remember seeing it just after I left school. And it just, I was entranced by the ability of those images to have a really solid effect on you. And I thought, I want to be able to produce pictures like that. I want to be able to have that effect on people. So, Mike Bowers, how do you see the future of your profession as a photojournalist in the digital age? Well, look, I think the job will still exist. The rigorous training that I went through is not going to exist. And I've noticed judging awards, I'm, I'm a judge in the New Zealand Awards, that things like editing ability has really slipped over the past few years. What do you mean by editing ability? Well, ability to pick the photo, I suppose. Ability to what to include and what not to include in terms of choice of pictures. Just the nuts and bolts of the profession because I went through a formal training and I went to tech and I learned good things and bad things, useless things. So I don't know why I need to learn all about the chemistries and the fraction ratings of glasses and things, which you never bloody use. But I learned lots of stuff when I did my course, put me in good stead. And just picking up a camera and using it, some people are better at it than others, but unless you have someone guiding you, as I did, you're just practicing your mistakes a lot of the time. The industry's fallen to bits and any sort of cadet program's fallen over. And so you get people picking up cameras and sort of self-taught and some are better at it than others, but there's a lot of really poor technique and poor ability out there. I fear for the future because I don't think the job as it stands now, where you have someone employed by an organisation like mine to just take pictures, whether it's going to exist. I think you'll have lots of people who are editors and look for images to pull off social media, and I think that'll increasingly be around. But more and more of my colleagues who were in newspapers have left because they can't make a living from it or they can make a very poor living from it and they're just not going to hang around and not make much money. So, look, I think there will always be organisations that have photographers like me, but I think they'll become rarer and rarer and there'll be less and less staff photographers on newspapers as the years progress because there's just, there's just less money, like the rivers of gold that were classified advertising are no longer there. So it's just the reality of it. Most journalists will be required to take basic pictures and videos themselves as well, which will eat into it. Um, and I think you'll have... You'll have specialists like myself that sort of deal with things like the blog. You couldn't run the blog without good photos coming into it all the time. Well, you could, but it wouldn't be the same product. So it'll see me out, I hope. But I'm, I'm certainly pleased, Peter, that I'm nearing the end of my career rather than at the beginning. Your father, Peter Bowers, was someone I admired a lot. And I used to see him on television on Sunday mornings and read quite a lot of his material. For me, he was old-school, sceptical political journalist and, and sharp, accurate, analytical. How much of an imprint did he leave on you? We've been talking about you as a photojournalist. How much of that journalism imprinted on you from your dad? Um, massively. And, and his peers like Michelle Grattan, Laurie Oakes as well. Um, his contemporaries left a, 
Alan Ramsey, these people who I uh, was a, grew up around. Um, and Dad, Dad had a very simple philosophy as far as becoming a good journalist went. He used to say to people, what are the six rules of journalism? And people would say, oh, you know, ethics and morals and hard work. And he'd go, no, no. The six rules of journalism are read, 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 write, write, write. I've sort of taken that as my way into photography and modified it really. It's look, 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 take, take, take. Just look at what other photographers do and try to replicate that and improve on it. And hard work uh, gets you there. You have to be willing to go further and you have to be willing to get up earlier and you have to be willing to work longer. It is a very highly competitive game. And wear comfortable shoes. People ask me, what's the one thing you'd give me that will help me in my career. Wear comfortable shoes because you spend a lot of time walking and carrying heavy cameras. And it sounds ridiculous, but I can tell you it's very good advice. Mike Bowers, thank you so much for spending some time with us in the Transit Zone. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Our guest, Mike Bowers, photographer at large for The Guardian newspaper in Australia and host of Talking Pictures in the Insiders program on ABC Television. I've included quite a few useful links to aspects of photography and photojournalism in the on-screen text for this podcast, so you can dig a bit more deeply into this fascinating topic. If you'd like to email us at The Transit Zone with your questions, comments, ideas for new Transit Zone podcasts, please do. Our email address is transitzonepod at gmail.com. That's transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening, and please join us again soon, right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Zone.